over scripture and hold each other accountable to what the scripture is saying. So it's never just one person and what they think the Bible is saying. It's four people pouring and praying over scripture and what we believe God is trying to say through the words. Um, that being said, everyone else on the preaching team is not here today, so I have no accountability. So buckle up. Um, no, but uh, does anyone else um, have a hard time deciding where to eat? Show of hands. Anyone? Yeah. Common problem. Um, so growing up in my family, my family, uh, I got to be careful because my parents are here, but growing up in my family, we are some of the most indecisive people I have ever seen in my entire life. Um, trying to figure out where to, we lived in Cleveland. If you guys don't know anything about Cleveland, take Dahlonega, take all the good restaurants away and about half the teeth away, you've got Cleveland. Um, and so there's only two restaurants in Cleveland and we still couldn't decide where to eat growing up. And my dad does this thing, and he doesn't realize he does it, but once we choose somewhere to eat, on the road to where we're going to eat, he names every restaurant we pass on the way and asks, wait, would, would that be better? Or, oh, what about that? They, they have great salads. He doesn't even realize he's doing it. We're like, dad, it took us an hour to make this decision. We finally made one, and now you're pouring out every other possibility we have to eat. And it's funny, because I do the same thing now. You can ask Addie, it is frustrating as heck. We're on our way to a restaurant, I'm like, oh, Taco Bell sounds good too. Oh, what about uh, Zaxby's? I, I could go for some chicken. And so that's kind of what we're going over today in Joshua a little bit, is there's, there's a decision placed before Israel, and Joshua says, here is your decision, and once you make it, everything else goes away. You wipe everything else away. It's like when you finally make that decision to go where to eat, you don't want the guy in the back seat saying, what about that? Or what about that? That looks good. No, you've made your decision and that's where you need to stand. So today we're going to be in Joshua 24. Um, once again, if this is your first time with us, we've been going through Joshua kind of chapter by chapter. So today's the last day of Joshua before we get into Advent. Um, so they gave me the big grand finale. I tried to get fireworks, but the Parks and Rec wouldn't allow it. Um, so you're just going to have to go without today, but that's okay. So... We're going we're gonna to talk about that decision placed before Israel, um, and we're going to take a look at what they decide and what that looks like and how Joshua wants that scene. But first, I want to get some context for where we're going to be. I want to get some context of the words that we're about to read through Joshua. Um, so a lot of great authors, uh, great mystery authors, say that you always have to start at the end with your guilty party and the crime that's committed, and then go back through and scatter your clues. Um, because otherwise, you're trying to solve a mystery as you're trying to write a mystery, and it doesn't work that way. So what I want to do today is I actually want to start at the end of Joshua 24. We're going to be in verse uh, 29 and 31. Once again, if you don't have a Bible, there's some at the ends of the rows. I think this one, yep, it'll be on the screen as well. So verse 29 through 31. After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being 110 years old, and they buried him in his own inheritance at Timnath-Sarah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. So this, this what we're about to read, this is, this is Joshua's deathbed moment. Um, I'm sure that he said other things in between this and, and that passage of him dying, but this is the only thing that is put 
in the canonical Bible. This is the only thing that he said, the last thing that he says that we know of in the Bible. This is the end of the movie or, or in that, that season ending of the show you're watching where the guy's about to die and he says, come closer, and he whispers in the ear of the person and you never get to hear what they say. But later on it comes out to be like the biggest thing ever and it unlocks all these mysteries. We get to know the mysteries. Um, and that's what this passage is. It's Joshua saying, come here, listen to me. Um, and he says it in front of all of Israel. Um, he puts them on uh, a giant mound and just says, here's the deal. So that's how important this passage is. Joshua knows that he has one more time to address the whole congregation of a nation of Israel. And these are the words that he chooses to say. So we need to pay very close attention to these. That's how important these words are. So taking all that into account, um, I wanted to make this kind of a study of Joshua. I know we started the series in Joshua 1, and Gabe talked about where Joshua had come from and how he'd been chosen from birth to lead Israel and the succession of Moses and all of the, these things. So I thought about doing that, um, but then the scripture hit me in the face and said, what are you talking about? That's exactly what Joshua doesn't want you to do. Um, because I wanted to look at Joshua and all the great things he had done because he's on his deathbed and, and how great his words are. But Joshua uses in this passage, he uses the word Lord 21 times in just this one chapter. He takes all focus off of himself and points it at God. The first thing that Joshua does in this passage, in the very beginning of um, chapter 24, is he starts by saying, this is what the Lord has said. It's in verse 2. I'll read it to you even, straight from the word of God. And Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, and father of Abraham and Nahor, and they served other gods. Joshua has an opportunity to address the entire country, and he says, this is what the Lord says. What shape would we be in if our leaders today did more of that? When they addressed the whole, they said, this is what God has said. This is what God has done. It has nothing to do with me. What if even when something great happened, no one took credit for it? How amazing would our country be? How amazing would our church be if that's how we ran? And that's what we see Joshua do. And that's what's so important is he takes everything off of himself. So the next part of the passage that I kind of want to read through is verses 11 through 13. It'll be on the screen. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, and Canaanites, the Hittites, and Girgashites, and Hivites, and Jebusites, and I gave them into your hand. I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. These are the words of God through Joshua, and he says, I was not by your sword or by your bow. And that's the theme we've seen throughout Joshua. So this, this is a reiteration. This is a reiteration of everything we've seen. Chapter by chapter, it feels like every week, the main point of every passage is, Israel did not win this fight, God did. Israel did not do this, God did. God is not for Israel. God is for God. And if Israel aligns with God, then they will be victorious because God is victorious. That's what we've talked about week after week after week. And this is a huge reiteration of that. 
That's what Joshua does. Now, when you're trying to preach, the first thing that you always want to do is your doctrine. Um, that's kind of the word for it. It's, it's your statement of beliefs. You want to start with your doctrine, and then you want to go into your application. We see a clear distinction here in that. When Joshua says, the Lord says, and he lays out the doctrine, the story of what God has done. All of the verses before it, I didn't want to read them all, but all the verses before it is just literally from the time of, of coming out of slavery in Egypt to where they are now, everything God has done for them. Joshua wants to remind all of Israel this is all that God has done for you. Look at what he has done. Look at his plan has come to fruition. Look at how he loves you and how he is taking care of you throughout all of this. I mean, we're talking about someone who's been with Israel for 110 years. He has led Israel into battle. He has led Israel um, across a Jordan, the Jordan River. He has led them, he's wandered in the desert with them for 40 years. He's a wise man who could do anything that he wanted with this last moment in front of Israel, and he says, listen to what God has said, see what God has done. And it's just an inc incredible thing for me. And then I realized this isn't the first time that this is done in the Bible. Um, so if you guys will flip with me to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 6 to be exact, it's actually backwards. Deuteronomy 6 verses 10 through 15, this is Moses. This is the man who came right before Joshua, who led Israel out of Egypt, and this is what Moses says. Once again, verses 10 through 15. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of people who are around you, for the Lord your God is in your midst, is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. This is Moses right before he dies. This is a last address to the people that Moses has, and Joshua is just mirroring it. Joshua watched Moses wash his hands of the sin of Israel and say, it's on you now because I'm, I'm out. I'm out of here. And Joshua does the exact same thing. Knowing he's going to die in the near future, comes in front of all of Israel and says, I'm going to wash my hands of this because I'm out. I've ruled over you for many years, and I've seen what you've done, and it's my time to go. It is on you now. And that's what Daniel talked about last week. He talked about him meeting with the leaders of Israel and pouring into them what they need to teach and making sure that they don't fall too far from the path. This is him coming to the people of Israel saying, there are people all around you worshiping other gods and you are not to do the same thing. There is one God that is your God and he is Yahweh. And so because he's, he's pulling from Moses, I wanted to see what Joshua's, we've seen Joshua's doctrine laid out. I want to see Joshua's application now. Um, and I want to see if it's the same as Moses's, and I think we'll find um, that it kind of is. So if you guys will flip back to Joshua with me. Once again, Joshua 24. We're going to start in verse 14. Now, therefore, therefore, I actually had this pastor growing up that said, anytime you see therefore, you need to go back and see what it's there for. 
Um, so we talked about the doctrine. We talked about him laying out what, what God has said. So in light of that, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, For be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord. For he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you. After having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord, our God, we will serve and his voice. We will obey. Joshua's application is simple. And I think sometimes in the church, we overcomplicate the word of God. I think sometimes we draw too many parallels and, and have too many pictures and, and things that we try to extrapolate out of the word. And some of it's useful, and a lot of it's very good, and I'm going to do some of that today. But Joshua's application is so simple. You either obey or you don't. That's it. We're talking about people who know the law. We've, we've seen it in just the book of Joshua. They have read the law aloud three times as a congregation. These people know the law. They know what God is telling them to do, and they're not. That's his application. It's simple. Um, And then Joshua issues this challenge and the Israelites step up to the plate. But what's really jarring is Joshua's response. There's a call and response going on here where Joshua says, okay, you need to serve the Lord. And Israel says, yes, we will serve the Lord. And Joshua says, you can't. Seems oxymoronic a little bit, doesn't it? And if you've done anything in evangelism, this is such a foreign concept to you. Because as soon as someone says, you're right, the Lord, our God, is my Savior, you jump on that train. You pray that prayer. You, you make them one of God's faithful. And that's important, and it's good. But Joshua wants them to understand the importance of this decision. This is not a feel-good, faithfulness decision. This is, is going to be hard. You have to obey every single law God has put out, and I want to challenge you to that. That's what Joshua does here. That's what we see him do. And it's such a foreign concept to be a part of that. Someone who says, you must serve the Lord, and then when someone says, we will, he says, you can't. And I think, I think he's mirroring Christ here. 
if we want to take this into the New Testament, into our place in redemptive history. So if we're talking about redemptive history, there's the fall. All of the Old Testament takes place in the fall. And it isn't until the New Testament that we get the grace of God through Jesus coming to die and that we are now living in that freedom. So if you take that to today, if you take where they are in the Old Testament during the fall and put it today, Jesus says this a lot. Jesus, who is God incarnate, He doesn't jump on and say, let's pray that magical prayer together because you said yes. He challenges his people every single day. One of the most common is Luke 14, 25. Large crowds of people were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. This is Jesus saying, you can't serve two gods. You have to decide. It's going to be God or everything else, including your own selfishness. We don't have idols as prominent as the ones they did in the Old Testament. We don't worship golden cows, but we worship ourselves. We just came off of a whole weekend of Black Friday and Small Business Saturday and Cyber Monday where everyone's goal is buying stuff and buying things and storing up their riches here where moths will destroy and thieves will steal. That's our idol. And we've got a lot more of them than just ourselves. And so Jesus is saying you you can't do both. There's no way to. You've picked your restaurant. Don't look at the others. Stop it. Stop talking about the menu of the other restaurant. You've picked where you're going to go. Stick with it. Joshua doesn't want to dissuade the Israelites from following God. But like I said, he's been with them for 110 years. He has watched them worship and recite God's laws. And then he's watched them hide riches under their tent from the spoils of war, as we saw with Achan. He's seen them freed from slavery in Egypt, and as soon as Moses is gone for more than one day, they make a golden statue that they now worship. They have promised to follow God over and over and over, and I have never seen it in their actions. And that's what Joshua is saying. He says, you, you keep promising to follow our God. You keep promising to be faithful, but I haven't seen you do it once. And then comes that verse that everyone has in their house, at least somewhere. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. <laughs> I, last time I preached, I confessed some sin. I consider myself a spiritual, uh, a spiritual hipster, per se. Like, I'll see something spiritual, I'm like, that's really good. I like that. But as soon as four or more people have it in their house, I'm like, oh, there must be something theologically incorrect. No, not four people can like what I like about my spirituality. But... But that verse is such an incredible verse, as long as we don't forget the importance of it. It's easy to slap it on a wall, but Gabe posed this question when I was talking about this. Are you slapping it on the wall of a house that you're putting before God in your life? Are you slapping it on on pillows and putting it on your couch because you want your house to look so good that people come in and that's the first thing they notice, how good your house looks? Or do you want them to notice how closely you're following God? That's, That's the question. And that's a hard question. If Joshua didn't call his people out, it would be a disservice to them. 
Now, the closest thing I can find to the covenant that God has made with man is marriage. And uh, me and me and Addie actually just got past our first year of marriage, um, so we're just a little over it. And um, so I wanted to read my vows so that you guys can hear what that covenant sounds like, what this covenant looks like. Adeline McCall Duncan, I've been praying for you since the day I understood what marriage was. I prayed that I would have someone beautiful that reminded me of God's beautiful creation daily, and he gave me a 15 on a 10-point scale. I prayed for someone who would put Christ above all else other than me and push me closer to him. And so he gave me a best friend who shares her testimony and shares her struggles. I prayed for someone who loved a little bit harder than I did because love is hard and couldn't leave a fight angry. And we made it this far and are now promising each other forever. I prayed for someone with a lot of patience and he gave me someone who said, you can't date me for another three months. Addie, I tell everyone I don't deserve you, and it's true, but you make me feel worthy of you. You make me feel good enough, and that is unconditional love like Christ. I will live some of my life trying to show you that I love you, and forever seems like a really long time to do that. I promise I'll try to stop fixing things, and I promise that I will love you sometimes when you make dinner for me, and I promise that I'll love you on Sundays, but other days are pretty busy. I will daily see you through the eyes of God, worthy of most of my love, but not all of it. I promise that I will die to myself every day and live for me, but also you. You are worthy of most of what I have, so now it's yours, what I didn't give to my girlfriend. I promise to sacrifice everything, well, most things for you, and seek God's guidance. I can't even get through the rest of them because those aren't my real vows. I hope you've noticed that. <laughs> for those of you who don't know, Carlton married me, and if those were my actual vows, I guarantee you he would have Krav Magad me to the floor, <laughs> kicked me three or four times, and said, it would be much better for you to have never dated Addie than to come here and promise to marry her and put out those vows. To talk about a girlfriend in your vows. To say that she'll get most of your love, but only on Sundays because the rest of the week is too busy. So why do we do that with God? Why is it unacceptable in marriage to say, you can have most of my love. But with God, we can say, oh, you can have most of my love. But Saturday, I mean, my week was really hard and my friends wanted to go out drinking, so, so Saturday's for me. Why is that? How can we do that? I think that's a problem. And I'm surprised that my mother-in-law didn't come up here and punch me in the face in trying to read those. I couldn't even get through them. It made my heart hurt to think about saying those words to my wife. So why doesn't it make my heart hurt to say that about my God? Guys, this is important. And I hope that shows you the importance of it. If you want to read my actual vows, I'll have them after. I promise they're not that bad. <laughs> what Joshua is saying is poop or get off the pot. 
A great theologian once said, do or do not, there is no try. That's not a theologian, that's Yoda. I just want, just want to make sure you guys all caught that. But it's important. Do or do not, there is no try. That's your choice. There's no gray area here. It's black or it's white. You follow or you don't follow. How can you halfway follow something? That's not fair to our God. A man who gave up everything, including his life. Joshua presents them with this option because he would much rather them say, no, we will not follow God, than to continue to say, yes, we will follow him. Yes, we will be faithful. Just like Carlton would have thrown me to the ground and said, how dare you even date, Addie? That's exactly what Joshua is saying. How dare you even date God? How dare you claim God as yours when you are not living that out in your life? I would much rather you say, I have nothing to do with him and live a sinful, full-out lifestyle for yourself in your selfishness than say, I follow God, but only on Sunday. Or only on Sundays and Wednesdays. Or maybe it's even more than that. But if you give any hour of time to something other than God, is that fair to God? In Revelations, we see it. God comes down hard. Revelations 3, 15 and 16. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were one of the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. God is rejecting one of the churches that's written about in Revelation because they are lukewarm. He says, I would rather you be hot or cold. I would rather you have everything to do with me or nothing to do with me. Don't stand in the middle. I say this just as much to myself as I do to you guys. Like I said, my feelings have been hurt all month reading over this. Paul lays it out in Galatians even. If you guys want to flip there, you can. I'll give you some time. It should be up on the screen. But once again, taking the Old Testament, where we are in redemptive history, and putting it now in this new redemptive history, we see it over and over. And Paul writes to the Galatians about it in chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ. The same thing that gave us freedom, we deny every day. Joshua says that they they can't and won't be forgiven. He says that you are not able to serve the Lord for he is a holy God, he is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. 
And he's right. We can't serve a holy and a perfect God. It's not possible. He's holy and perfect. What do we have to offer him? Worship on Sunday? Four songs? He has no need for wretches like us. Not a one. There's no reason he needs us. But the beauty of where we are now in redemptive history is that Jesus can make us perfect in the sight of the Lord. He can make us holy and righteous in the sight of the Lord. God still doesn't need us, but he wants us. And that's a beautiful thing. And once again, if you're wanting victory from being saved, if you're wanting peace and joy and hope and all the things we're about to talk about in Advent, they'll come but only if you align your heart with God's heart because God's is the victory. He doesn't fight for us. He fights for God. So until we align with him, we cannot be victorious. So Joshua spoke during the time of the fall. The fall happened and God had made this covenant, but Jesus hadn't come. And all the evil deeds of Israel could not be forgiven. It was too, it was too late. They had already despised and turned away from God over and over and over again. But today we have Jesus as our propitiation. And that's great. But that doesn't mean that we can't, that doesn't mean we can stop obeying. That means we should obey all the more. Joshua says, you cannot serve Yahweh. Israel and the church, even as it is today, couldn't hear a more beneficial word than that. We can't. We're going to fall short. And that's why Jesus will pick us up on his back and carry us to the end. And that's a, that's a very big decision to follow God. It's a big decision to be saved. And I don't want to glance over the importance of that. I think all too often we speak of a joy and a peace and a comfort of a cuddly, lovey God. We do it to coerce more people to faith or to believe or to grow our congregation. And Joshua does the opposite. He challenges his people because that isn't what faith is. Faith is, as Jesus said, killing yourself and your selfishness every single day. Denying everything other than in God, including your family and your home. Putting it all on the line. Surrendering everything to God. That's what faith is. That's what that decision is. Once again, Paul writes to the Galatians. They were looking to other gods. And, and in chapter 4, verse 8 of Galatians, Paul says, Formerly, when you did not know God... You are slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? We come to church and we sing songs like, I surrender all. But do we? I ask myself the same question 
Do we surrender all? Those are scary words. I know we sing it in this hopeful, sweet hymn, and, it, and it's worshipful, and it feels so good, and it does when you can say it with truth. And there is a, a joy and a peace that comes with following God. It does come. Don't get me wrong. I'm not going to say that following God is nothing but heartache and hardships and it makes your life terrible. Peace and joy do come when you align with what God has for you. But it doesn't come without a cost. And you have to calculate that cost. You have to think, am I willing to give it all? Am I willing to give up everything? Am I willing to give up my nights of drinking too much? Am I willing to give up late night visits to my girlfriend's house? Am I willing to, to serve somewhere else, serve something other than myself? Are you living in the paradox of serve Yahweh and you cannot serve Yahweh? Because that's where Joshua puts us. There's this paradox. He tells his people, serve Yahweh, for he is good. Look at all the good things he's done. Look at this doctrine that I've laid out for you. Look at the history of our people. You should serve God because of all he has done. And then as soon as they agree, he says, you can't. And we have to live in that paradox. We have to live in that place where we're going to do everything we can to serve God, but also know that we cannot that Jesus has to be there. He has to carry us. That's the beauty of where we are in redemptive history. We get Jesus. The Israelites didn't. They didn't have propitiation for their sins. They just broke the law again and again and again. And it's funny because even though we get mad at Israel and talk about how often they break the law, I feel like we break it way more often, church. Gabe was frustrated in reading this because he was like, I mean, how, how much is the, have the Israelites served? How, how much have they seen what God has done? And there still has to be another reminder from Joshua. They've, they've set up altars all across the way. And I, we all had to remind ourselves, like, we are the Israelites in this story. We're the ones who have seen God's glory and turned the other direction. And so that's, that's what I want you guys to think about as I kind of get closer to the end of this sermon is think about the, the past of your life, everything you have experienced, the doctrine, even if you are not saved, if you are breathing, you are blessed. Gabe said that several weeks ago and it stuck with me. Everything that has happened into your life that leads you up to this point is a blessing. If you're in college, somehow you got the money to go to college even if that blessing is being born into a family that can pay for college. You, you found UNG through some divine providence that has put you here at the branch where you get to listen to good word, not spoken by me, not spoken by Gabe, but spoken by God. I, I like spoken word poetry a lot. I write some. Don't ask me to say it for you because it's bad. Um, <laughs> it's more of like a journaling technique, but I listen to a lot of spoken word too. And one of my favorite spoken word artists, he, uh, he says that the biggest oxymoron in the English language is the word almost. You cannot be all of something and most of something. You must be one or the other. 
And I think about that a lot. You must be one or the other. You can't be almost saved. Almost has a gray area. And we see Joshua says there is no gray area. So the question is, Christ died fully on the cross and God keeps all of his promises. So why do we almost keep our end? Christ went all the way down Calvary, all the way to death. Why are we living an almost lifestyle? Why are we singing, I surrender all, and living, I surrender almost? Why are we, instead of living in the righteousness of who God is, living in the right-ishness? God has called us to more than that, and we have to answer that calling. And if you haven't made the choice to follow God before, don't feel rushed into it. If you're still discovering and seek, seeking, do what Joshua does and look back and discover and seek in the past and see what God has done leading forward. Because I don't want you to come to salvation for promises of what have happened in your future. I want you to come to salvation in honor of what's happened in your past so we can carry that into the future. That's what salvation's for. Like I said, I don't wanna rush anyone into this decision because it's a hard one. God asks a lot. And thankfully, Jesus pays the price that we can't. But we gotta keep trying, guys, because that's what he deserves. Even if you aren't a believer, I guarantee you can find something in that. Something in, in the history of what God has done. The last thing in this passage Joshua does is set up the stone as a witness to remember the promise they made to him. In Joshua 24, verses 25 through 28, if you're still there. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote those words in the book of the law of God, and he took the large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it, is, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. Joshua washes his hands of the unfaithfulness of Israel. He says, I've told you what the Lord has told me. It's on you. And he leaves this memorial stone, something we've seen Joshua do over and over. And he puts it underneath this tree and he says, this, every time you look at this, remember the covenant you made here. Remember the vows that you spoke to serve our God. And if you know anything about the rest of the Old Testament, Israel doesn't do that. They fall away again and again and again, leading up to why we need Jesus. This, this is part of why we do communion every single Sunday. It's a sign and remembrance of the promise and commitment we have made to God. And it's a sign to remember that our promise and commitment cannot be upheld by us, so we need the blood and body of Christ. 
And that's why we ask that only believers partake in this. It is a remembrance for us who have taken that vow. But even if you aren't a believer, I would like for you to know, today is the day that you set a stone as a witness. Joshua makes that decision very clear. Choose today whom you shall serve. Who are you serving? If you're already saved, are you serving God? Are you giving all of yourself or just some? Are you, are you going to church on Sundays and worshiping and, and loving the feeling that worship gives you, but as soon as you leave this church, you're thinking about the next time you can go out partying with your friends? Are you thinking about how you can make more money to be more successful, to buy more things, to lavish upon yourself, or even, even lavish upon those that you love? What's in your mind as you leave church? What's in your mind every single day? Choose you this day whom you shall serve. And let today be your stone of remembrance, a witness. And if you're not saved yet, once again, this is a hard decision. But please, if you feel any pull on your heart, if you feel any slight, slight draw towards what I'm talking about, Talk to someone. We're not going to press you into salvation. We're not going to push you until you can't turn around. Like I said, this is a hard decision, and it's a lot, and we want to help you with it. Because at the end of the day, I promise you, it's worth it. It is so worth it. So the band can go ahead and come on up, and they're going to play, and we're going to go into a time of communion. There's going to be elders over there. I'll be over there if you want to talk. Talk to someone. Choose you this day whom you shall serve. That has been echoing in my mind all month as I've studied this passage. Who am I serving? Am I surrendering all? Or am I living an almost lifestyle? Am I living in the gray area? Dear God, Thank you so much for your word. And those that go before us who have brought your word so faithfully and so lovingly. God, I pray that I didn't hurt too many feelings today. But that your conviction washes over those who need it, including myself. God, thank you for the gift of Christ because we cannot obey you. I want to live in that paradox. I cannot serve you, but I must try. God, you have given so much to us over the doctrine of our lives and over the beliefs and the ways that you've gotten us to where we go, Lord. And we cannot thank you enough and we cannot serve you enough because you are a holy, unblemished God. So thank you for sending your holy, unblemished son to die a holy death so that you can see us as holy and unblemished. And thank you for salvation. Not salvation so we can go to heaven, but salvation so that we can dedicate the rest of our lives to the God who has set into motion the past in our life. You are a good and loving Father, and you've given so much, Lord. Thank you for that. I pray that nothing that was of 
that anything that was not of you does not leave this place. It falls upon deaf ears. No one hears it. But God, any truth that you spoke today through your word and through your servant, let it not stay here. Let it go. Let it live a surrendered all life and not a surrendered almost life, Lord. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen.